if there really is one guard at the end of the day against tyranny and in protection of democracy, it's the guard that the founders wrote into the first three words of the U.S. Constitution. We the people. We can't continue doing the same old things and expect to reach universal health care by 2030. It's simply not going to happen unless we change the way we do things. We can do this. We can actually make a positive impact in saving the forest, reforesting, and have economic prosperity for the local populations and for the businesses around it as well. The real work for PolicyLink right now is to win on equity. To get to the issues of designing a democracy and economy that actually works for everyone. This is Mission to Scale, a podcast that reveals the tools, mindsets and strategies that organizations and funders need to maximize their impact. Because the world's biggest problems need solutions at scale. I'm your host, Dan Beredovitz, founder of Spring Impact. In this season of the Mission to Scale podcast, I had the pleasure of interviewing the incredible people that won this year's Skoll Award for Social Innovation. From instigating ways to protect our planet and democracies, to advancing racial and health equity, each guest spoke with me about their groundbreaking approach to solving the most pressing challenges of our time. And in true Mission to Scale fashion, they also shared their stories of scale, with each organization impacting the lives of thousands, if not millions of people. In the last episode of our special series with the Skoll Foundation, we're highlighting what is innovative about their solutions and revealing their strategies to reach scale. At the beginning of the series, we spoke to Debbie Rogers. Debbie is the CEO at Reach Digital Health, a pioneer in using mobile technology to empower people on their health journey. This organization was created back in 2007 to help HIV patients in South Africa reschedule their appointments. We managed to help to reduce the loss to follow-up from 30% to 6%, which is massive. Using very simple technology, a simple idea, a simple design, really but putting the power in the hands of the citizen, of the patient, you know, empowering them in their health journey. Realizing the power of mobile technology, they later partnered with the country's Department of Health to launch MumConnect. Expecting mothers in South Africa receive important information about their pregnancy and have the opportunity to respond and ask questions. This program was revolutionary in helping the government to gain a real-time understanding of the public health landscape. For example, we were able to pick up a shortage of iron folate throughout the country before any stockout systems were able to pick it up. Because if you tell a mother to take her iron folate and she goes to a clinic and there's no iron folate and she has a way to tell you that, trust me, she will tell you very quickly (laughs) that there's no iron folate. And so we were picking these things up from the feedback from mothers that we'd never designed the system to do it. This tool presented not only an opportunity to improve people's health, but also advance South Africa's healthcare system. But like many trailblazing ideas, digital health was met with skepticism. Some of it is really around the idea that there wasn't a solid or robust enough set of studies that could directly link 
a digital health platform to improved health outcomes. And, you know, that's often what happens when you're innovating. There are new things that you are trying, but you don't necessarily have randomized control trials behind it. You don't have large clinical studies behind it necessarily at the time. There was a sort of certain amount of skepticism based on just when we see the evidence, maybe we'll believe. And so that was a very fair thing. I do think that there was also a certain kind of arrogance behind it. I think that the people making the decisions around healthcare are governments, they are clinicians, they are highly educated people who believe that the power lies with them to solve the health issues of the populace. And so I think there was just a skepticism of, so I tell this person to do this thing or I give them information. It's not really going to make a difference because we need to treat disease at a clinic. And so that kind of skepticism, I think, was just innate in how people think about it. It was a power dynamic that I think had been set up that I think still continues. But this all changed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Suddenly, when nobody had the information, when nobody knew where to go, when everybody was looking for answers, so not just the other, not just the poor, not just the disenfranchised, suddenly it was obvious that we needed to set up these kinds of systems. You know, we set up a program in South Africa using WhatsApp very quickly after the pandemic started. And within two weeks, we were doing the same for the World Health Organization, an organization that had never spoken directly to citizens. Interestingly enough, you know, you do your annual planning and at the beginning of 2020, we had said, okay, in five years time, we would like to have taken Mom Connect to five other countries. And so that was our plan. And within three months of the COVID pandemic happening, we were in 11 countries with our work and with the National Department of Health. So that was the acceleration. I think it really was a case of people just putting their skepticism aside and saying, OK, we need this. Let's do it. And that massive growth. So there was clearly a moment around COVID-19. Has it stuck? And do you think it will stick? Are those governments still using it? Are you getting more people coming to you saying we want to take this on now? Or does it feel like a moment in time? I would say half, half. <laughs> um, definitely there has been, I think, a general more acceptance around the value of communicating directly to citizens that hasn't necessarily gone away. What is very telling is that the National Department of Health in South Africa is expanding that service to all kinds of health concerns. So it's really, they see it as like the way that people can get access to information from the National Department of Health, the way that we can serve people outside of the clinics, we can serve them with this kind of service. And so we've expanded to TB, for example, and non-communicable diseases and quitting smoking, etc. So they definitely have, have caught on to that, but we already knew that they were converts from the MomConnect program. I think the most telling thing is that the World Health Organization has expanded their efforts to communicate directly to citizens. They are also expanding beyond COVID-19 because it is not as big an issue right now and into other health areas, but they are still continuing with direct to citizen communication through channels that we've developed, but also through others. You know, they've started to see this as an integral part of what the WHO can do within the health system. So that's really important. 
I think we learned a lot about how do we make things really successful in other countries. And I think we definitely expanded faster than we could support across all countries. And we knew that we weren't going to be able to. So we worked with partners and we got partners on the ground and said, okay, we'll give you the technology, we'll give you the content, but we won't necessarily be able to run everything. So, you know, that you're going to need to take this on. And depending on the partners, some were very successful and some were not. While not all efforts to implement digital health have been successful, South Africa and many countries around the world continue to expand their digital programs to cover a variety of diseases. Governments have started to realise the power of mobile technology to improve health systems. The Reach Digital Health story reveals that sometimes, the quickest way to scale is not by pivoting your solution, but by changing people's mentality around it. The second guest in our series was Ian Basson. Ian is the co-founder and executive director of Protect Democracy. It's an organisation designed to strengthen institutions and prevent the rise of authoritarianism in the United States. Essentially, what we have built is an organization that has five primary tools that are designed to animate the institutions of American democracy. So we have a legal tool, and it goes out there to make sure that through litigation, the courts do their job and the law is upheld. We have a legislative tool where we help build policies, build coalitions, and move them through legislatures. We have a strategic communications operation that tries to help the fourth estate, the media, do its job through providing briefings to reporters and editors, and also through projecting publicly the narratives and information that the public need in order to do their job to self-govern. We have a software team that builds tools that help executives and government better be able to do their job. And then finally, we have a think tank team that is helping to really understand everything that's happening and essentially do research and development on other possible interventions that can help strengthen the threads of our democracy. Through legal action, Protect Democracy has held authoritarian actors accountable, blocked anti-democratic policies, and set new laws against abuses of power. In the lead-up to 2020, we did some research and put together a report on what sorts of approaches history and international experience teach are most effective when coming out of an autocratic moment for preventing recurrence. And what we learned was that when there is accountability for gross abuses of power, they are less likely to recur when there's no accountability, they are more likely to recur. And the report got into all of the different mechanisms for accountability. It's not just criminal prosecution. There are a lot of other mechanisms. And one of them is truth-telling, is having a commission that gets into what abuses took place, what the impact was of those abuses, and what sorts of truths need to be told, and perhaps reforms need to be implemented. This is why after a mob of Trump supporters stormed the US Capitol following the elections, Protect Democracy supported the creation of the January 6th Accountability Committee. So those people who were most ambivalent and unsure about what happened, what actually happened on January 6th, and may not have been following the hearings so closely, making sure to package the most important information from those hearings for those people. And that's really the same audience that at the end of the day ended up splitting their tickets in the 2022 midterms. 
To achieve such meaningful impact in American politics, Ian has had to grow his team and capacity. He advises those scaling their organizations to be very intentional about culture. We've grown quickly over the six years we've been in existence from a very small handful of people organization to now pushing 100 people distributed around the country in upwards of 20 different states. And that has been a real journey in terms of how to scale quickly with high human talent capacity type of staff. And the key for us has been being very, very intentional from the get-go about internal culture and organizational management. In my experience in the nonprofit world, there are two kinds of nonprofits. There are those that have a set of culture principles or a statement of values that live in a document somewhere, or maybe they're printed out on the wall, but they don't live in the day-to-day experience of people working in the organization. And then there are others that are much more intentional about culture and values and weave that culture and values into everything that the organization does, into its hiring, into its onboarding, into its training, into its management, into the day-to-day conversations at the organization, into making sure that, that only those who are able to really replicate those values and that culture are the ones who stay in the organization. And I think it's really important for NGOs and nonprofits to be that latter kind, to make sure that those cultural principles are just the DNA from the get-go. And I'm really grateful that we've been able to make that DNA stick. And that's allowed us to scale. Michael McAfee agrees that in the path to scale, paying attention to the culture and values of your organization is crucial. Michael is CEO at PolicyLink, their organization strives for racial and economic equity across America. And PolicyLink's mission is reflected in the way the organization is structured. What I love about PolicyLink is that it looks like the United Nations. And working for the all is as fundamental as reading and writing. You can't work here if you won't work for everyone, if you're afraid to say white folks or Asian folks, etc. So it's the first place that I've ever worked at that I actually felt liberated to do my best work and to be myself. And it's because it's built into the foundation of the organization. You know, if you can't be bold, if you can't speak to the issues of the day, you can't work at PolicyLink. It's just that fundamental. PolicyLink's goal is to design a country where the color of your skin or the amount of money you're born with doesn't determine your chances in life. They do so by working at the grassroots level and with government to implement policies that advance equity. We don't have institutions designed for a thriving multiracial democracy. We've never asked ourselves, what do our institutions need to become for the people who live here now? What does our economy have to become in order not to have 100 million people struggling to make ends meet? So that's our task at hand right now, to slowly but surely begin to do that work to create a just and fair society. PolicyLink has influenced over $20 billion in policies advancing equity at the local, state, and federal level. What advice would you have for others who are trying to scale up their work for the benefit of communities everywhere? The first thing I would say is we have to build strong, enduring institutions. Dreaming or having aspirations or having a strategy document without the financial resources or the talent means nothing. And too often we haven't focused on the quality of our institutions. We focused on programs or services. This is a moment to make sure we have the institutions 
that can usher in the type of democracy and economy we want. So the first thing we've got to do is to stop being a critic of everyone else and actually model what we say we want to see in the nation. Model it. Build the types of institutions that are actually the lifting up what works component of what we're doing. We have to be the examples. And what I mean by that is my salary is never more than five times the lowest paid person. The lowest paid person must make above living wage in the city that they are in. We pay 100% of benefits. We actually pay corporate wages because we want to build wealth for folks. These are all things that we don't have to do. But if you really want to know how to bring equity in the work world, struggle to do it yourself, right? And that's where we learn how to do this work. So the first thing I would say to people is, Make sure that their institutions are models of what they're talking about in the world. That's how you develop the mastery to do this work. The second thing is to really ask yourself, are we doing the work that has us being worthy to exist in this moment? You know, I don't believe organizations deserve to exist simply because they have great brand recognition and they've been around for years and they've had a seminal leader. They only deserve to exist if they're willing to do what the moment requires of us. And so that's What I would want us to really think about, which is to be loving critics of ourselves and really ask ourselves, are we doing the work that is worthy of our existence? Because if we ask those questions and we've centered a population like we've centered that hundred million in America, it will force us to be innovative. It will force us to be courageous and it will force us to find the edges of the work that is liberating. Michael reminds us that in order to scale, it's important to take a hard look at how your organization is being of service to society. Karina Pimenta and Marco van der Rehe, our last goal awardees, know this all too well. Through Conexus, Carla and Marco work to serve our planet, starting with the indigenous peoples and local communities that are crucial to forest conservation. Karina is the co-founder of Conexus and Marco is its interim executive director. Conexus supports the development of community enterprises in the Brazilian Amazon. They believe that helping people that care for the forest is the best way to look after our planet. The concept we worked with Conexus is that we need small business with lots of people that benefit from them. It's an inclusive economy size. Conexus targets associations, cooperatives, small business, micro-entrepreneurs, and they develop productive activities inside the forest or in the countryside in the rural areas. They produce the food we eat in Brazil and the food that helps with food security in the local areas. They manage the forest and they use their knowledge of the forest to produce it more sustainably. We all know how damaging businesses can be to the environment, but Karina and Marco believe that developing a bioeconomy can directly address environmental destruction. By providing financial and tactical support to small producers, Conexus is incentivizing biodiversity in the region. Brazil had the largest rural credit policy to develop agriculture in Brazil, especially family agriculture. And although we have this huge policy for more than 20 years, biodiversity products, bioproducts, were not being benefited from this policy. So... What we created was partnerships with banks to be able to direct these funds from the government to these activities. And we say we are greening the rural credit because we are looking into how bioproducts 
cocoa, acai, Brazil nut, fisheries, and all this can actually access these benefits that help this agriculture system. First of all, our commitment is to zero deforestation. And we have to achieve that. And as government, we have to achieve that. As civil society, we have to work together. And as economic sectors, we have to look into ways to decarbonize. So this enables us to create opportunities to develop this bioeconomy. Importantly, Conexus's solution involves the communities most affected by climate change. Marco believes that we must act urgently to save our planet, while also listening to those who know best how to take care of our environment. In the end, we have to walk with the speed of the communities in the forest. We cannot let them run because they will triple. We have to respect the speed of the local communities, the indigenous communities, the riverine populations, all the other traditional people in the Amazon. We need to respect the local speed in their development while we need to go as fast as possible. The Conexus story reminds us that collaboration is essential in tackling today's most pressing environmental challenges. To scale our solutions, we must partner with governments, the private sector, and most importantly, with the communities most affected by climate change. Talking to this year's awardees taught me that the path to scale involves a variety of innovative strategies. These include changing people's mindsets around your solution, as well as paying close attention to the values of your organization and your contribution to society. To achieve change at scale, we must not only collaborate across sectors, but make sure that the most marginalized communities become an integral part of our solutions. I'm left inspired from the conversations with Skull awardees. I hope that you learn from them as much as I did. If you're interested in learning more about this year's winners of the Skull Award for Social Innovation, visit the link in our show notes. Before we go, we'd like to thank the Skull Foundation for the work that they do and for partnering with us in this series. If you love Mission to Scale, please recommend our show to a friend or colleague. You can subscribe or follow our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thank you so much for joining us in our special series with the Skull Foundation. Mission to Scale is produced by Spring Impact and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Spring Impact, visit springimpact.org and follow us at Spring Impact on Twitter.